Hmm. Hang on a minute. This isn't the usual relaxing introduction of singing birds or leaves rustling in the breeze. That's because today I'm on the banks of the River Meuse in the southern tip of the Netherlands and getting ready to explore this watery world by pumping up an inflatable kayak. Well, I'm not. Gabby, my guide for the afternoon, is. I'm just pointing my weird fluffy microphone towards her while she does all the hard work. This river, like many across the continent, has suffered decades of human engineering in a relentless attempt to control it. Sections were dammed, straightened, dredged and fortified. We tried to tame its wildness, to make it predictable, practical, to behave how we wanted it to behave. Of course, our manipulation of this channel had consequences, and we soon realised our approach needed to change. Thankfully, this river is now in repair. There's an army of excavators and dumper trucks busily working away behind me. They're scraping and shaping, shifting and lifting, steadily returning the river to a more natural state. The motivation behind all this is what's beneath my feet, gravel. This is a story of an unlikely pairing between miners and ecologists and how they came together to rewild the river. So before we head off merrily down the stream, I'd like to learn how gravel reshaped the course of this river's history. I'm James Shooter, host of the Rewild podcast, and this is the Moose Valley River Park. I've been travelling through northern France, across Belgium and into the Netherlands, to speak with some of the team involved in this unique partnership. I've been told to meet my first contributor on the banks of the river at somewhere known as Woodhenge. Colour me intrigued. How are you? I'm fine. Hello, Alphonse. Thank you. Nice to meet you, James. James, yes. Are you well? I'm well, yes, yes. Good stuff. So this is strange. What's this? Yeah. (laughs) We made it. Did you? (laughs) Yes. Oh, right. Amazing. So these are, what, old, old trunks? Bound in the water course or? Yeah, under the groundwater table. Sometimes you find trees. Yeah. And they are over 2,000 years old, some of them. Wow. So they are really from. Uh, 2,000 years old. I say Julius Caesar once <laughs> walked around these trees. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> what a thought. And they are really a little bit in the, in the of course, you have the better one, Stonehenge, <laughs> but we, we made Woodhenge. And it's in such a way that the trees are in a, in a line like that. Yes. And it's the same line as the meander of the river has. Oh, I like that, yeah. We take shelter from the wind beside one of these 2,000-year-old giants, so I can learn about the backstory to the Meuse Valley River Park. I'm Alphonse van Winden. I'm an earth scientist, and I'm specialised in landscape designing. So in areas where in the Netherlands landscape is transformed because of all kinds of transitions we are in, I'm the one who thinks about the new landscape. We're in the most southern part of the Netherlands, on the banks of the Meuse. This is the only free-flowing part of the river, saved from any major dams for 60 kilometres along the Belgian border. And it's this section that forms the River Park Restoration Initiative. I think to compare it, it's a little bit like the the Thames in England, quite quite the size of the river. And the the special thing about this river, it's it's gravel where it's flowing. So not sand or clay, it's a gravel river. That means that the whole soil here underneath us is is, is made of gravel. 
and that gravel uh, was transported by the river in former periods in the ice age and it comes from the Ardennes that's a middle mountain region not so far away only 50 kilometers south of, of, of where we are there are the mountains maybe six seven hundred meters high and during the ice age there were no trees and the river and the water the melting water took all the material from those hills down to the river and the most transported it to this area so a big layer of about five to sometimes 15 or even 50 meters of gravel was deposited in this area wow. and the most is now flowing between those gravel uh, yeah, banks since the ice age the temperate climate embraced woodland, and the braided channels that might have stretched as wide as a kilometre and a half became a more meandering system as the trees stabilised the substrate. Since then, humans have played their part, removing most of the woodland once again and utilising the flat, fertile ground for agriculture, which has become exponentially more intensive in recent years. It's the second largest river in the Netherlands. Eh? Next to the Rhine, we have the Meuse, and it's uh, it's it's also quite a big river for northwestern Europe. Not not as big as the Loire or something like that, but it's 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 really it's 800 kilometers long, so it's quite a long river. And uh, it the speciality is that the discharges are very fluctuating. So in summer there can be only 10 or 15, so you can can cross the river uh, without. Uh, yeah, without uh, swimming, mm. and in uh, winter it can go up to thousand or fifteen hundred, and s- sometimes, but that's only once in fifty years or something. It go can go uh, even to three thousand cubic meters per second. It's just yeah, nice for nature that there are floods like that. So we, we we are always a little bit happy when there are floods. Not not everyone is is very fond of that, but mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for the natural dynamics, it's good that there are floods. River systems have been formed over millions of years, carving their way through the earth and leaving gorges valleys and floodplains behind them. A wild river is a wonderful thing, perfectly designed to accommodate changes in water levels across the seasons, tranquil and serene in one moment, and in the next, raw, unencumbered power. Of course, the the climate is changing rapidly. We see it everywhere in the world and also in the Netherlands. And uh, I think the major thing for this river is the droughts and the longer periods of low water discharge, because then yeah, for all species which are, yeah, which, which who like the water, <laughs> they have it very difficult. And also during periods of low water discharge, uh, the, the, the pollution which is still in the river, the, they are, it's, it's less uh, mixed. So it's, 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 the, the, the contamination is higher than when, it's, uh, when there's a lot of water. At the other end of the scale, when the river roars with 300 times the volume of water, the banks are breached and water should spill out onto the floodplains surrounding the main channel. As the volume drops, the water melts back into the river, dropping nutrient-rich sediment on its flanks in the process. This normally happens in winter, but in summer 2021, when the river normally sits at 50 cubic metres a second, unseasonal heavy rain that lasted for several days saw the highest discharge for 110 years. A phenomenal 3,260 cubic metres a second. The devastating part of summer floods is that it's the growing season for life on the river. These rare events rip young vegetation from the banks, wash out fish fry that seek shelter in the gravel, and are devastating for waders, gulls and terns nesting on the pebble banks. Nature can handle the odd rare event, but if these become more regular, that's when we get problems. 
and a system shackled by human engineering designed on past peak flows, they won't stand the test of time. The inhabitants of Marsban just upstream had to be evacuated that summer, ultimately saved by a couple of centimetres of the final brick on the defensive wall. The, the biggest change has been made about 150 years ago when uh, we fixed the banks of the river. By that moment, it was the industri industrial uh, age. Uh, industries came up and you have the Midlands with, with all the mines, etc. We had that also here over the border in Belgium. In the, along the Meuse, there were big uh, companies for coal and iron and all that stuff. And they, they wanted for shipping, uh, they needed transport to the, to the sea. So then they, uh, they, they, they fixed the river Meuse in a course with, with dams and longitudinal dams along the, along the river. So he, he couldn't move again. So the dynamics collapsed. And that was done for the ships. It took around 20 years for the dams and embankments to be completed. But at that point, technology had moved on and ships were already bigger. The summer months rendered the river useless for transportation and the mining companies couldn't have three months of the year without shipping. So their attention turned to canals. Now, if you're from the UK, like I am, when you think of canals, your thoughts may take you to a leisurely weekend, drifting down a disused canal on a narrowboat with the odd water vole or coot stopping by to say hello. Canals in the Netherlands are on a slightly different scale. The Juliana Canal, just to the east of where I'm stood, was recently widened and can now take ships 11 metres across and 190 metres long. Those canals need water, and especially in many of three canals, and every canal needs about 10 to 15 metres per second for, for the, ma the maintenance of the, of the water level in the canal. That means that in summer, the, the, the moat itself gets only a very little bit of water. Mm. After we made, started to make those canals, we also broadened them later. When, shipping, uh, when ships became more brick, we, we, we just transformed those canals. And yeah, that's that's it's it, it's good for the river because it, it doesn't have because shipping is often the, the main reason that rivers can't uh, go their own way. To restore this river to its former glory, you need space. The 60-kilometer stretch would need to reclaim its floodplains if water is going to lead the way once more. Trouble is, in a bid to compete on the global market, agriculture had expanded right up to the water's edge. So these ambitious plans called for bold decisions. And then to restore nature, everywhere in the Netherlands, the government, they came with a plan, we should restore nature. And they said, OK, we will restore in the next no, 25 or 30 years. We will take out, we will buy agricultural land, about 200,000 hectares. So that's almost 500,000 acres. Yeah. We will buy it from agriculture and transform it into nature. And there were, of course, that was not an easy discussion, but uh, the agriculture, uh, they said, okay, the best place for us to do that is along the rivers, because the lands over there are not so so good for us, because it's flooded sometimes, there's also pollutants uh, in, the, in, the, in the soil, but uh, yeah, we, we divided the area, okay, the agriculture in one part and more natural parts next to that. As farms began to compete on international markets, only the large survived. Cranking up production, decreasing costs and leaving smaller operations out on a limb. 30 years ago, when Alphonse first started his job, there were 300,000 farms in the Netherlands. Today, there are just 50,000 left standing. 
in a newly competitive world, selling land to the government at market rate was suddenly quite a nice proposition. Yeah, the area is, is, is quite long. It's not a wide area it's because you, you have the banks of the river. Mm. <laughs> so the river itself, it's, you know, it's still 50, 60 metres broad. And then you have the, the banks. And of course, sometimes some extra agricultural land is bought. So now it's a stretch of, and also on the Belgian side, they made nature. So maybe we, my, my hope is that it will be, you know, at the end, maybe one or one and a half kilometres, maybe two kilometres wide mm. natural area along the river with the river itself in the middle. A corridor of fully functioning wild river habitat, a kilometre or two wide, would be a huge bonus for nature in a country with such an agricultural landscape. I leave Alphonse with the 2,000-year-old trees and decide to walk the mile north along the river to my next meeting point with Francois. This section of river was one of the first to be restored, so the water fans out across several channels, with intricate islands stacked in the middle. A kingfisher flashes electric blue as it pipes across the bank, and cormorants are drying their outstretched wings in the morning sun. I decide to take a shortcut through a copse of willow, shimmering silver in the breeze. Unfortunately, this is a James Shooter shortcut, and I get momentarily lost and tangled in a jungle of nettles. Eventually, I reach the car park, where I'm to meet Francois. He's the project leader for the construction companies, so I can spot his 4x4 caked in dust a mile off. I'm intrigued to hear how river restoration has become the unlikely partner of gravel extraction. There's a little bit of history in, uh, in, in only in Limburg, in this part of uh, the Holland, in this province, there was uh, gravel extraction. And we used to do the gravel extraction in, uh, in the middle of Limburg and there was no uh, nature development around it. It was only extraction and, uh, and then when we finished, we left, uh, le- left a, a large lake. So uh, a lot of gravel companies bought the land on this riverside and uh, then the plans were made. Uh, A lot of uh, criticism was there for uh, leaving only lakes. So uh, the government and the environmental uh, organizations, they wanted to to have more nature development around uh, the gravel extraction pits, gravel extraction. So then there came a plan, it was uh, from the, the beginning of the 90s, to uh, make green for gravel. So there would be gravel extraction around these areas uh, nearby the river Meuse, and there would be also some nature development. So then Bureau Stroming, you, you met Alphonse van Winden, he was one of the, the, the founders from the, the organization. They made a plan for the government, and this was for uh, uh, how do you call it, the future of a gravel river. So local people were behind the positive change here and the government listened and the gravel companies started to work with the communities to develop a more sympathetic plan that would leave their sites in better standing than when they found them. After the severe floods of 1993, the disaster kick-started better flood protection into the restoration process too. This river stretch would be constrained no more. The local uh, residents and they were very skeptic about this project because the project has to be paid with gravel mm. and they expected a lot, a lot of uh, rumors, of, 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 of noise. Uh, the project uh, was uh, executed in, in a very long period from 2005 to 2027. So the people in the rest of the Netherlands all uh, high water protection is paid by tax money. 
And this project had to be paid by the money we made by selling the sand and gravel. So the, the citizens was very important to get, the, to get their support. The momentum we gained after the floodings in 93-95. When the floodings weren't there, I think this project never would have happened. The pilot project, designed by Alphonse and his team in 1999, back on the stretch at Woodhenge, paved the way for showing the government and local residents what could be achieved. In essence, the landscape is transformed from a constrained river with embankments and intensive agriculture into a construction site with extraction and restoration efforts being carried out simultaneously, followed closely by nature finally reclaiming the newly vacated land. The restoration works were shaped by previous depictions of the river's path in old maps, before the embankments were brought in. Since then, villages have been built and a huge canal runs parallel, so it's not surprising that the new old course has been reimagined somewhat to bounce between these modern-day barriers. When considering all the human infrastructure surrounding it, the reshaping of this landscape has been, and continues to be, truly pioneering. The Dutch uh, province, the gravel companies, some contractors, they all had to work together. We had to get the funds because uh, we, we first need money to start this project because everything has to pay with the selling of uh, sand and gravel. So we had to build some uh, processing harbors where our um, uh, uh, processing plants, floating processing plants, we can place. Uh, we had to build harbors, we had to uh, remove roads, uh, build bridges. We had to do anything like here. The bridge has to be here before we can uh, open the, the side channel. So we have to, to get a lot of money before we can start it with the project. And it is a, a private company who is uh, uh, executing this project. The, the government is not a client, but, but only a partner. We do it for our own risk. So uh, it takes a lot of effort. Looking across to the Belgian side of the river, on the opposite bank, the water has carved into the land and you get a perfect cross-section of the substrate. The top of the eroded bank is green with vegetation. Underneath that is a metre or two of topsoil and beneath that, four or five metres of gravel down to the low summer water level and probably another four or five under that. As an interesting side note, the Meuse formed the border when Belgium separated from the Netherlands in 1843. Since then, sections had been straightened, so the original meandering borderline now cut off little parcels of land on opposite sides of the river. These inaccessible fragments of nations became lawless. In 2012, a passerby discovered a headless body on one of these banks and alerted the Dutch authorities, only to be told it was actually Belgium's problem. The Belgian detectives had to get across the river by boat in order to investigate. It was a jurisdictional nightmare. So the countries agreed to a small land swap that would switch the borderline to the Muse's new channel. As the river begins to reshape once more, you can imagine more territorial headaches are incoming. Anyway, back to business. On the river side, you can see that there is only a top layer, about two or three meters, depends on what area you look. And there is some gravel, a uh, package of gravel, about, I think here in this area, about seven or eight meters thick. Mm -hmm. So on the riverside, you saw also in the location mirrors where you walked, and you can also say, see here, yeah. we remove about approximately two or three meters of the top layer, 
the whole top layer and then only the gravel till the water level so as you can see it now yeah. so the river at itself is not deep in it. It's, it, it we made it no deeper we didn't excavate gravel in the river but only in the uh, we widened the riverbed and from the the the, the water level from the most at normal uh, a discharge about uh, 30 or 40 cubic meters per second then there was a very we excavated the gravel and ended on a, a very slow steep uh, at, at yeah, at the at the, the top of the the level. Mm -hmm. So here on the riverside, there's a lot of gravel gravel uh, left for the river to play with, and then we have in the project about eight deep gravel pits because we have to pay for the project. So you, you must excavate uh, about uh, to pay for the project. I think about. Uh, 54, 55 million tons of gravel. The physical alterations to the watercourse here are river widening and floodplain lowering. In essence, this makes more space for water and allows river dynamics to play out naturally once more. Nature is able to take control of the floodplain in the place of unproductive farmland, and natural processes now better protect communities from flooding. Artificial dikes and embankments may work for a while, but they usually just shift the issue somewhere further downstream. Not to mention that there will now be more water spilling out after rushing through the protected section. Equally, under extreme circumstances, when water levels are so high they breach the V-shape of embankments, the water actually becomes trapped on the floodplain side because unsurprisingly, the flood protection works both ways. These defences disallow very high floodwaters from seeping back into the river channel, which means they can actually make a situation worse as the water then hangs around for longer. Widening the riverbed and lowering the floodplains, there's a lot more river of room for the river. So the water levels drop here in this area about uh, by uh, the side. We built a side channel, now we are building, and it will reduce, reduce the water levels by uh, 40 centimeters on this area. Okay. And we also have some uh, areas uh, more near Maastricht. Uh, they had a lot of, uh, there was a lot of floodings in 1993-95 by uh, more than one meter level reduction wow. with high uh, water levels. That's a lot. Yes. So people don't complain here anymore. So they don't have to leave. In some ways, the gravel extraction acts like a big flood event. It rips out what was there and leaves a section of land ready to be taken over by pioneer species. There's no planting here, but the exposed substrate quickly embraces greening up, encouraged into a diverse mosaic of vegetation by a team of grazers and browsers. The, the cost of the whole project is approximately 700 million euros. So by, uh, we had to pay all the, the costs for the project. The taxpayer doesn't pay anything. So uh, when we sell uh, 64 million tons of gravel and sand, so you can uh, you can account out. It's about uh, 11 or 12 euros per ton. We had to sell it to pay for the whole project. So the nature develops here by uh, selling uh, sand and gravel, and and that's only the that's the only way we can execute this project by uh, for no money paid by the tax players. Flood alleviation and nature restoration, all for the princely sum of zero euros. Locals were skeptic at first. But when their homes remain dry, even after the unexpected floods of summer 2021, the ultimate test was overcome. Just. 
As the work continues, hopefully that will further increase capacity in the Muse. And it will need to. The 2021 summer extreme of almost 3,500 cubic metres a second pales in comparison to the climate change projections of over 4,000 cubic metres a second. Francois takes me to meet Gabby, an ecologist for the Dutch NGO, Nature Monument. We meet for lunch in a brewery and enjoy some mushroom croquettes, and it would have been rude not to sample some of their beer too. Only one though, because Gabby's the one taking me kayaking and snorkelling down the river. She casually mentions that I should leave my valuables behind, because the last time she took a photographer, the kayak flipped and her camera drowned. Hmm, maybe I will have that second beer. A bit of Dutch courage needed, perhaps. Wow, this is exciting. Thank you for uh, suggesting this. Yeah, sure. It's the best way to uh, explore the, the river. I always, I mean, I don't do it often, but every time I go in a canoe or a kayak or... I just, it's such a nice way to explore. Yeah. Like, wildlife doesn't really, yeah. you know... Bother. That, yeah, bother yeah. with you, like, you're quiet, you're, you, you feel like part of nature, don't yeah, you? It's yeah, nice. Indeed. Gabby tells me we're heading off into the wind to start with, so we need some strength to get round the corner. Thankfully, I'm with the muscles from Brussels, and she helps us power down the course. I mean, actually, she's from Neerpelt, but that doesn't have the same ring to it. And of course, we have the beaver who likes willows too. Yeah, I saw a few, because uh, uh, I walked along here this morning, I saw a few burrows coming up um, oh, yeah. into the ground, so I assumed that was the beaver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, going towards that, yeah, stand of trees there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, herons, yeah. Yeah, yeah three, four, five. Lots of cormorants. That's also a good part of the... Oh, another kingfisher. Yes, yeah, yeah, kingfisher. Oh, brilliant. Wow. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. Flash of blue going down. Yeah, so fast. Um, let's try to paddle to the island, okay. and then we'll see if we can go scuba diving oh, okay. close to the, uh, the dead trees. Okay. We'll uh, go over there. I think that's the best place. You see the, the, the branches yeah, sticking yeah. out. Uh, just one warning, yeah. because of the current, you yeah. can get entangled within the trees. Okay. It's not very dangerous, but <laughs> you have to be aware of it. Okay. It's not a pool or something st still water. Yeah. There's current on it. Okay. And also with the swimming, you are a good swimmer? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I would say so, normally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it's, it's quite a distance. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, deceiving, but yeah. I think you're fine. You'll be fine. I, th I think you'll be all right with that, yeah. Yeah, the current is not very strong here. Mm. It's more over here right now. Okay. But there is current. Yes. That sounds good. <laughs> Little bit chilly, <laughs> but it's fine. Over here, you see some, uh, some river plants. Underneath uh, tree trunks, it's a low part of the river where some uh, dead trees are washed on. And uh, in the early spring, you can see shellfish on the trunks. Behind the trunks, you get uh, low current places where uh, microfauna, uh, mm -hmm. how you call them, yeah, like uh, dragonfly larvae and everything. 
they uh, dig themselves into the sand and they predate there on uh, on food. Yeah. Really cool. We swim back to the island, breathing hard against the current through the snorkel. Every time I look up to see where the boat is, Gabby's an extra 10 metres ahead. I double down to try and catch up. My mask fogs up, I swallow some river water. And when I resurface, Gabby's already standing waiting for me. Perhaps she felt sorry for me, but she kindly adds that she's been training for a triathlon, and so I feel slightly less inferior that I couldn't keep up. River swimming offers a truly special connection to this fantastic habitat. I just need to work on my front crawl. Rivers are more than just an opportunity for exercise, though. They're an essential part of an ecosystem. It's, it's an ecosystem on itself. It uh, provides water, uh, food, shelter for a lot of animals. And um, in the River Moose, it's one of the only rivers in the Netherlands that have a north-south orientation. And therefore, it's a very important migration uh, route for cranes, for example. A lot of processes are involving in rivers. Um, because of the currents, you get uh, real field uh, species. They need a lot of oxygen, and then you have a lot of current uh, in the water that brings oxygen into the current. So this is a river with a lot of current, and it brings uh, a lot of oxygen into the water. The embankments that were built to make the muse better for shipping not only affected the morphology of the river itself, but its ecology too. By fortifying its banks, the river hasn't been allowed to rip through the vegetation and wipe the slate clean. Where trees and woods may have succumbed to heavy flows, they've stood in safety for many years. That may sound like a good thing, but it starves the ecosystem of its dynamic power and holds habitats in the status quo. With more processes at play, the diversity of species is starting to improve once more. Some species have come back, uh, like um, barbel and chub are coming more and more, uh, we find them more and more in the water because of the cleaner water and because of the dynamic in the, in the stream. More oxygen is in the water, so uh, these species who are dependent on more oxygen in the water, we see them more often. Common nays also, sea trout, uh, and even Atlantic salmon are seen in, in the in river. But that's also due to um, reintroductions. But they manage and they can survive. Uh, river lamprey, sea lamprey are back. Um, on the Belgian side, we have uh, tree frogs back in, uh, in, the, in the ecosystem. On the uh, Dutch side, we have natterjack toads coming back uh, from the land. Uh, upper, upper land uh, into uh, the, the valley and not only in summer the river is a very important uh, uh, ecosystem but also in the winter because of the fresh uh, shellfish we get uh, in winter goosander, smew, common uh, gold eye and we also see a lot of more species of uh, longhorn beetles and longhorn beetles are probably we think, it's not been proven yet, but we think that the longhorn beetles are being transported by the wood that has been uh, transported by high water. It's been uh, eroded on the banks, the trees fall in, and the, wood, the longhorn beetle larvae that are in the woods are being transported on new places. And new species are coming up on, uh, in, the, in the river moose. Uh, new species are uh, also the badger, the wild boar has been seen, 
And we even think uh, the otter is also has been seen in, uh, in the river Meuse. To speak of a settlement is too early. Uh, there has to be a little bit more time before uh, the otter is uh, resident. But there are some signs that uh, he's, uh, he's coming to check out uh, the Meuse. The fascinating thing about this restoration initiative is that you can see multiple stages of the process as you kayak along the course. From the construction site with Francois, to the recently restored with Alphonse, and now further north with Gabby, where we're entering a more mature section, with riparian woodland succession happening before our eyes. Uh, the willows are now about 40 years old, and that's uh, an aged willow, a grandpa willow. <laughs> so now it's, it's uh, quite normal that they collapse. And within the willow tree, you see all the species uh, uh, standing ready to take over. Elder walnut. Walnut, yeah. Yeah, walnut. Oh, okay. It's uh, also uh, a species from here, are ready to take over and uh, next to the young willows, make a new uh, new kind of forest. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Yeah. And the old trees are, uh, the, the dead trees are also very, uh, for woodpeckers. Mm. We saw a little hole uh, from the last breeding season. And we have a lot of uh, woodpeckers now over here. Fantastic. It's not just old age that is felling trees here. Beavers are hard at work too. Marsh frogs are singing out from one of their wetlands. And interestingly, butterflies are coming to feed off the weeping sap of a freshly chewed willow trunk. I wouldn't have guessed that beavers benefit butterflies, but that's just one of the wonderfully surprising connections of interspecies relationships. Uh, when a tree enters the water, for example, when a, a bank is eroded and the tree falls into the water, it's been taken uh, along the current to a certain place and there it stays. Uh, the tree itself, for example, is like a cage to protect the young fish. Uh, we have a lot of cormorants in the area and cormorants uh, like eating fish. And the young fish can go into the, the tree with the, with the branches and everything, like a, some kind of a cage to get protection for the cormorants. And on the top, when the tree sticks out, a cormorant or a kingfisher, for example, uh, as a viewing point to, to fish and uh, have a view on the habitat. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen more kingfishers in a day here on the Muse than I would in a year back home. So it feels like it would be rude not to highlight the brilliance of this little bird. Kingfishers are inextricably linked with rivers, and they're a gratifying indicator of healthy freshwater habitat. They need to eat around 60% of their body weight daily, so they thrive when fish populations are doing well and the waters are clear. So far so good for the moose. They hunt from perches above the water, plunging into the river with open eyes, protected by a transparent third eyelid. Yes, kingfishers come with their own built-in goggles. The majority of food items are fish, but they also go after dragonfly larvae, water beetles, freshwater crustaceans, and even amphibians. They breed in burrows, which they excavate into eroded riverbanks. I've actually come across a disused nest site in Scotland while swimming in a river back home. There were two perfect little kingfisher foot-sized grooves at either side of the tunnel, and I could just picture them waddling relentlessly back and forth to feed hungry chicks. In short, kingfishers are awesome and they go hand in hand with dynamic rivers. All hail the king. So the muse is showing good signs of returning health. Those flashes of blue zipping back and forth are giving their royal seal of approval. But river ecosystems rely on the whole catchment being in good nick. 
And that's difficult when urban encroachment is on the march. The corridors to the, the higher, the, the nature reserves higher up the flanks is not, um, not guaranteed for the future. So uh, we as nature conservation organization are now lobbying within province and within governance to, uh, to keep those corridors and to uh, restore it for nature so migration can take place also on the higher flanks of the river. My trip down the Meuse has been a fascinating experience, if a little chilly at times. If you've never taken a trip down a river by boat, kayak, canoe or paddleboard, I urge you to. You'll find a greater connection than looking down on it from the banks. Just be sure to leave your valuables behind. It can be hard to balance the needs of extraction with the needs of nature. The two don't really seem to fit. But here, the parties have found a solution that works for all. Now I'm certainly not suggesting we can start extracting from already wild places with nature in mind. Please don't do that. But here in the Netherlands, in a historically modified landscape to begin with, gravel extraction brought the finance and manpower to get things done. Yes, it would be great if governments were willing and able to pay for all the restoration work required. But in a world where we need to make so many changes to what humans have done, private finance will be key to unlocking some of that potential. It's important to see here that whilst gravel extraction was a driver, it was people power that shaped the way it was done. Local communities made sure their voices were heard and it changed an entire system for the better. How often do we hear positive news stories like that? So use your voice in unison with others and let's make change together. We don't have to accept the way things are, and we don't have to go with the flow. Unless you're swimming in a river, of course, and then it's always advised. Thanks for tuning in to episode eight of the Rewild podcast. Hopefully an insightful discussion on how we might find compromise for the greater good. Whilst mining companies probably don't first spring to mind when thinking of likely collaborators, I think the Meuse Valley River Park has shown positive results can be achieved when different stakeholders come together, and more importantly, listen to one another. Thanks as always to the brilliant contributors, and especially to Gabby for not capsizing us on the kayak, even if it did feel like it was going that way a couple of times. Andrew O'Donnell of Beluga Lagoon provided the tunes, and Gemma Shooter created the art. The Muse Valley River Park is a member of the European Rewilding Network, a collection of groundbreaking initiatives across the continent, brought together by Rewilding Europe as part of a broader rewilding movement. This is an organisation making rewilding happen through positive action on the ground. Do join us next month for our first visit to a Danish site. I'm also thrilled to say we've now surpassed 50,000 downloads of the podcast. If you get a moment please do leave a rating or review. It really helps us reach more people. Here's to the next 50,000. Catch you next time.